You're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Teresa Woodruff, Thomas J. Watkins Memorial Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Feinberg School of Medicine, Chairman of the Division of Fertility Preservation, Director for Basic Science in the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center of Northwestern University, and the Director of the Institute for Women's Health Research. Dr. Woodruff, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Could you start off by telling me what is actually meant by fertility preservation? Fertility preservation refers to the ability to maintain a gamete from a male or a female, a sperm or an egg, at the time of a cancer diagnosis for later use when that individual has survived that disease and is now ready to pursue fertility options. Is anything being done in a research way that will get around these problems that an egg goes through when it is frozen? Yes, so that's a very important question. There are a number of uh, recent breakthroughs that are, I think, very exciting. The first of which is to try and take advantage of the large number of small immature follicles that exist in the ovary that have not been recruited into the population that will ovulate in a given cycle. In humans, there is a single egg that is ovulated each month, but there's a large number of immature follicles that have very small eggs that are part of what is known as the ovarian reserve. So a real potential option for young women with a cancer diagnosis is to, in fact, retrieve either a whole ovary or part of one ovary and preserve or freeze that immature follicle uh, with the hopes that we can one day grow that follicle to the point where you can get a mature egg. Now, in the past, this has been really quite a hurdle uh, biologically to get an immature follicle to grow to the point where it can be fertilized. And in my laboratory, we recently developed a remarkable collaboration between a reproductive science project or problem and, in fact, a biomaterial scientist. And what we recognized is that the ovarian follicle really is a unit of the egg, uh, which is the female germ cell, and a set of somatic cells that surround the egg. These are the nurse cells that, in fact, provide many of the metabolic needs of that particular egg. So our idea was to, in fact, maintain the somatic cells, the nurse cells, together with the egg uh, in a three-dimensional matrix that we hypothesized would permit the egg to mature over time. The biomaterial that we elected to use is called alginate, which is a product of seaweed and interestingly is used in a variety of settings, including in the food industry, as a thickener in ice cream. But this alginate has many, many properties that make it very useful in bioengineering. And for our purposes, the alginate was important because we could very easily encapsulate an individual ovarian follicle and maintain it in a three-dimensional jello-like environment with hormones that could easily penetrate the gel and access the follicle. And similarly, the follicle could produce hormones that would leave the uh, context of the gel and, and be found in the media. 
And so this alginate provided a three-dimensional uh, matrix that then we could encapsulate an individual follicle or hundreds of follicles from the cortex of a single individual. Now, the work that I'm going to describe to you has been done both in mouse and in rhesus monkeys, and I'll tell you a little bit later about how we're then applying it to the human. So this is truly a story of bench-to-bedside uh, translational uh, investigation. So in the studies involving the mouse, we isolated hundreds of these immature follicles and placed them into an alginate bead. And what we found is that the somatic cells did, in fact, maintain their essential connections to the oocyte. So rather than losing the connections, they actually maintained a complex of these two critical cell types. And because of that, what we found is that the follicles could grow over time, and by about 12 days in cultures, the immature egg had grown to the size of a mature egg, and the somatic cells were now producing hormones such as estrogen and progesterone that are hallmarks of a maturing follicle unit. The next step was to see if those fertilized eggs could, in fact, result in live, healthy offspring. And so we, in fact, transferred the embryos to a foster mother and, in fact, have a large number of very happy and healthy mice that have been born uh, as a consequence of this new technology. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Teresa Woodruff, and we've been discussing preserving fertilization. Your, your research is really f fascinating, and I'm wondering if you already have begun to look into the ethical issues that may be arising. Well, that's an, that's an interesting point. I think there will be a variety of ethical discussions, and in fact, at the very beginning of this uh, program, we brought into our Division of Fertility Preservation the renowned bioethicist Lori Zoloth, and uh, she's participated with us in thinking about how you apply a technology from the bench to the bedside when it has to do with uh, fertilization and creating new offspring. So one of the major ethical considerations is how you approach a cancer patient with a diagnosis that will lead to their infertility and offer them a research opportunity. So we have live births now in mice, and we have good translational data showing follicle growth and survival in monkeys, but we do not yet have the first live birth in human. So how do you, in an appropriate way, talk with a young woman with a new cancer diagnosis or a parent of a child uh, who will lose their fertility due to the cancer treatment about a research protocol that may provide fertility options for them later in life, but for which at this point in time we do not have the first human live birth from the technology. And that's kind of a tricky question. And so the way we approach it is to provide to a patient all of the information we have. We talk with them about the options that they would have to potentially delay fertility for emergency IVF, if that is an option, to do nothing and potentially have some fertility return at some point after cancer treatment. 
or to enroll in a research protocol where one ovary would be removed with the hope that by the time they have recovered from their cancer, that they would have the option to have their follicles matured in vitro in the same way we do in vivo. It sounds like you have a real team approach to this. Absolutely. That's been a critical aspect of the oncofertility program that we've built. And in fact, we have engaged bioethicists. We've engaged a group of scholars that are in the field of communication studies in our School of Communication Science at Northwestern. We've engaged scholars in the Kellogg School of Management who are interested in understanding the economic plight that uh, may be part of decision-making when a young person is faced with a fertility threat that might cost something. How do you make cost assessments of what is going on with your decision-making? We also have the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern involved in this program to try and provide appropriate educational modules to patients and their families, as well as appropriate educational modules to clinicians in practice. This is new, rapidly changing technology that oncologists and fertility specialists are not aware of. And so being able to provide to them modules that inform them about the new technology and the application of that technology is really critical. And getting that information out uh, is part of the program that we have as a part of this uh, School of Education and Social Policy. We also have social workers, psychologists, clinicians of all sorts, uh, and basic scientists in the engineering disciplines and reproductive science disciplines coming together in a large collective program called the Oncofertility Consortium. You know, although you and I have been discussing cancer patients, do you see this technology expanding to non-cancer patients, women who have waited either for professional reasons or family reasons, and now wished that they had had an egg preserved for them earlier in their lives? So certainly that would be the extension of this program, that if, in fact, a woman wanted to preserve her fertility based on a lifestyle choice, and she might want to maintain her own young egg. She might actually opt to uh, preserve a piece of the ovary at a young age with anticipation that then she would have a good quality egg when she was ready to have her own biological children. Now, this is an area that is really, I think, just emerging as a conversation about what is the extent to which this kind of new technology might be applied to this lifestyle choice for a woman. The other application would be for a young woman going into a threatening situation like into uh, war that she might want to preserve her fertility uh, prior to going into a threatening, threatening environment or in fact uh, applications for endangered and threatened species. Just as men can now preserve sperm samples, endangered and threatened species germline is preserved through the male sperm. And the reason for this is largely because we have not developed good methods to preserve fertility for the females. And so this technology could also have major implications for many of the uh, mammalian species that are being lost every year. Before we leave this subject, I can't uh, leave it without saying this sounds, this fascinating research sounds like it might also be very expensive. Can you give me an idea of how you're funding your research? Boy, that's, that's an important question. Well, it's, it's tough. When you're developing a new technology, it's often difficult to get uh, funding from the National Institutes of Health. 
we have had uh, a grant from the NIH, from the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, that has allowed us to uh, start this program. We also have a grant application in right now for the uh, Director's Roadmap Grant competition, so um, we are hoping to get funded under that mechanism. We have had uh, a couple of advocates in the Chicago area actually provide uh, some amount of funding to this work, work directly. So funding of fundamental science such as this, particularly given uh, some of the issues with fertilization, is rather difficult. And so we rely on NIH as well as uh, private donors. I want to thank Dr. Teresa Woodruff, who has been our guest today, and we've been discussing fertility preservation. I am Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.